We're joined today by a very special guest, Pierre Lassant, Chairman Emeritus of Franco Nevada. He is also the CEO and Chairman of Firelight Investment. He is a very distinguished guest, preeminent voice in the mining sector. We're delighted to have you back with us, Pierre. Welcome. David, thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure to be on Kitco. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to have you. We're here to discuss recent market action. I had you on the show a few months ago, and we went into detail about your philosophy, your background in mining. For the viewers who haven't seen that video, it's highly educational. Pierre has gone into great detail about his strategies for the last 30 years and how he's built an empire for himself. I highly recommend you check out that video if you haven't already. Today, we're talking about recent price actions. Gold has continued to fall. I'd like to start with an overview of the gold market. Why do you think, in your words, why do you think the gold price has continued to fall since its August highs? Well, the, the main answer to that is uh, the 10-year uh, tips and the U.S. dollar and a little bit of the Bitcoin. And if I can take all three separately, I would say that the increase in yield that we've seen in the U.S., particularly recently, uh, accounts for probably 40 to 50 percent of the decrease in the gold price. The increase also in the U.S. dollar value vis-a-vis -vis other currencies, probably 30 to 40 percent. And then the rest, I would say like 10 to 20 percent is due to uh, the, I would call it the mania around Bitcoin. Okay. That is about what's going on right now. All right. So you consider Bitcoin a threat to, to gold? Would you, was that a fair term to use? I wouldn't say it's a threat because uh, I, I look at Bitcoin very differently than I, I would look at gold. Uh, you know, people who buy gold are risk off people. They're people that are, they, they want to essentially take a risk off their portfolio and diversifying. When you buy Bitcoin, you're risk on because if you look at the volatility of Bitcoin, it's totally, totally risk on. So the profile of the investors is very different. Uh, but the fact is, is that when you look at the millennials in particular and the kind of money that have been floating in their pockets because of, you know, Serbia and Canada, because of the COVID bill relief in the U.S., they're at home. They're, you know, playing. What are their friends buying? They're buying Bitcoins. They're not buying gold. And that has had an impact, okay. and which I value at about 10 to 20% of the decrease in the gold price. All right. Uh, we can talk about that um, again in just a minute. I'd like to talk about gold equities now. You told me something very interesting offline, which is that gold equities typically lead the bullion at the bottom. Uh, what yep. did you mean by that? And can we observe a similar pattern right now? Um, well, if you go back, you know, and this is my six or seven gold cycle. So I, I can't get too excited by, you know, like up and down 20 or 30%. I'm too old, I'm afraid, or I've seen too many. Uh, but at the bottom, if you look at uh, the, uh, you know, 2000, for example, when we had a turn, the, the gold equities always lead the bullion. And why, I don't know, but it seems that the equity investors are smarter than the bullion investors. And they're always ahead by, you know, a month or two of the, the bullion. And uh, right now, there is a bit of a discrepancy. And it started about last week, where, in fact, the gold equities are up while the gold bullion keeps going down. So I'm kind of wondering whether or not we're right at this particular point in the cycle where the equities are, look, are telling the, the bullion market, maybe there's a turn coming. Okay, so you could see you could see the gold equity the gold bullion go down maybe another 20 30 dollars but if the gold equity stays on path right now 
I would say that this is the sign that we are reaching the bottom and the bullion market. Do you think the gold equities are following, well, you said there's a discrepancy. Do you think maybe they're following the S&P 500, the broad equities indices more right now? Uh, well, equities are equities, so you're absolutely right. I mean, if the uh, S&P is going up, the gold equities will have a tendency to go up because they're more correlated to the overall market than the bullion itself. So there is some truth into that, and we are in a bull market. So okay. that's number one. But also, there's a, the fact that you know even at $1,700 gold, the gold mining companies are making a lot of money and they are paying like, you know, fantastic dividend. I mean, you look at Newmont, the stock has got a 4% yield. Well, where are you going to get that kind of yield even in the uh, debt market? Like you, you can't that. So, you know, I think that the return to the shareholders is putting a floor on the equities themselves. I, I, um, I want to ask you if, if let's say we have a situation where gold and the equities move in different directions. In that scenario, would the gold miners follow the broad equities index or would it follow gold? Uh, well, I mean, in, at, at the end of the day, the uh, impact of the market is more important on the gold equities. So if the S&P is going up and the gold, the equities are gonna go up as well. And of course, if the a bullion market turns around, they're gonna go up twice as fast. I understand, all right. Yeah. So we're looking for a bottom here. Let's talk about sentiment Sentiment now. I've spoken to some investors about gold sentiment, and I've been told that it's pretty bleak right now compared to last summer. Would you agree with that statement? You know, I yes, I absolutely agree. When you look at the various indicators, that's absolutely true. Personally, I can't see exactly, you know, like, yeah, I mean, we, we've had a, you know, a correction that's been, you know, quite impactful. You have to remind ourselves that if you're mining gold today and you're getting $1,700 an ounce, the miners are making a lot of money. Their their cost all in is about 850, so they're making like a you know 100% margin. That is huge money. Can't forget yeah. that. Yes, absolutely. I, I remember you spoke to me last time about this. We spoke at a time when gold was trading a couple hundred bucks higher. And margins were fantastic back then. Are margins still fantastic now, even if a couple hundred bucks lower, Pierre? They still are. They still are. Because if you look at their total costs, most of the mining companies are in the 900, you know, plus or minus $50. So at $1,700, like, you know, there's still, you know, $800 margin. That is really fantastic. I'd like to revisit a topic we spoke about a few months ago, which is mergers and acquisitions. I remember you telling me that uh, people are going to go on a shopping spree in uh, this year because of higher cash flows, because of higher cash reserves and the higher margins that you spoke about. Do you still see that happening? And uh, do you see more consolidation between the mid-tiers, the juniors, or perhaps the, the mega caps? Which, uh, which tier do you see more of that happening? That's a very good question, David. And uh, what I will say to you is that uh, this correction in the equities is setting up a, uh, a, a, an M&A, a merger and acquisition environment uh, that is exceptional uh, because it's realigning a lot of uh, companies' value to the point where they are keen now to proceed where before the values might have not been aligned, like you know, one stock trading at 1.4 times NAV versus one at 1 
this correction has kind of brought everybody back up to like, you know, levels where they can talk. And I expect, and I hear a lot of talking around in the industry. So I expect that you're going to see a number of announcements over the next three months. I, I really do. In your experience in the past, Pierre, have you observed more deals being done at high margin environments or low margin environments? A low margin environment. That's there, interesting. First of all, there, there, there's more to gain uh, you know, in a low margin environment when you do one plus one equals three. Um, and uh, there, you know, there are a lot of, or you know, I, I've done two triple mergers, okay, in my life where one plus one plus one equals five. <clears throat> and not, you know, what do you three. mean by that, Pierre? Well, um, if you look back at you know, in 2007, eight, um, I engineered the, um, the triple merger of, um, at that point, it was Metallica, which had a, a small, nice open pit mine in, in uh, Mexico making great margin, uh, but it had <clears throat> no, no projects. <clears throat> and at that point, we had just finished building the mine, so we had no cash. <clears throat> and uh, we were able to find a company which had the new Afton development project. So they had a great project, but they had no cash. And then we found a company that had cash, but no project. And we put the three companies together. Now we had a company with an operating asset, making money, a development asset. We had cash to develop it. And that became the uh, new gold deal. And each of the stock were trading at a dollar. And we, when we merged them, the I mean, resulting company ended up trading at over $14 a share. I see. And okay. that's what I mean by one plus one plus one equals five. Yeah. So, okay. You've had high, you've realized uh, accretion, higher synergies. Uh, just Absolutely. And that's the kind of thing that exists right now. I mean, you know, there are companies out there where um, they should either merge with like their neighbors to, you know, so they don't have to spend twice the capital. Uh, they should really, you know, there, there's too many, still too many management team uh, that are collecting checks instead of like looking at shareholder value and say, like, you know, what's best for our shareholders, not for the management, but for the shareholders. And there's got to be more pressure on these companies to merge and get on and deliver shareholder value. Who's going to be applying this pressure, Pierre? Is it, is it, is it the shareholders themselves or is the market going to apply pressure by, let's say, I don't know, maybe some incentive from either the government or we're going to see competitors doing, doing deals and then, okay, well, maybe we should be catching up. I like, to, I like to know how this pressure will be implemented. Well, I think the pressure will be implemented by the, uh, the, the board of directors of these companies more than anything else, because they will see the pressure coming from other deals. And, you know, in the case of uh, Metallica, for example, and New Gold, uh, when you have that kind of example and your company is, not, uh, is underperforming vis-a-vis -vis the, the market, you get a lot of pressure from your shareholders, from your board of directors. And then, you know, at some point you may just get, you know, acquired. You, you may have a hostile bid in front of you and that's not good. Yeah. Okay. That doesn't reflect well on management. Right. Right. Yeah. And in this environment that we're speaking about, do you think investors would prefer to be in the bullion space or in the mining space? Usually when, when prices are at, Sort of a rebound like you're, you're talking about what do you usually see 
Oh, I mean, I, you know, I would prefer to be in the equity. Absolutely. A hundred percent. But, you know, just to come back to circle back to the, the bullion market, the one thing that, you know, <laughs> is different between bitcoins and gold is that the gold market has a real physical market. And uh, what we are seeing now in China and India is a huge rebound in the physical sales of gold. I mean, gold demand in China is up 171% this quarter and over last year. And we're going to see the same kind of rebound in China and in India. Uh, And uh, so, you know, there is a point where the physical market comes and say, "Okay, give it all to me because we'll take it. And I think we're probably reaching that point right now as well. So that's also the good news of the gold market. I, I, that's a very uh, good point, Pierre. How big is the physical market in relation to the entire gold market of around $9 <laughs> trillion, just approximately? And does it have a lot of impact on the price at the end of the day? Oh, it does. I mean, at the end of the day, the physical market sets the price because like, you know, every time an ounce of gold is sold to the physical market, it sets the price. So the physical market, just to give you an idea, has been as much as 90% of the market and has been as low as 30 to 40% of the market. Right now, it's about 50-50 between investment demand and uh, the physical demand. But last year, the physical market, the investment market was definitely the market that impacted gold the most. And if you look at the gold ETF, you know, they were up the up over uh, 850 tons last year because mm-hmm. of investment. This year, it's been a relentless drawdown, like, you know, selling every week and every week. When you see the gold ETF flatten out and the demand start to pick up, that will be the sign that the gold price is going back up. And, but in the meantime, it's the physical market, the jewelry market that will pick up the gold that's being sold. I like to draw parallels to the silver market. Now, we saw something happen not too long ago with the silver squeeze. There was a lot of demand, a huge surge in demand for the physical market. In fact, many retailers ran out of inventory. I remember that night, it was a Sunday. They ran out of inventory completely. They had to maybe even backdate some orders or reject some orders completely. Yet we did not see the physical price or the spot price of silver rise above $30 and sustain that level for very long. Why do you think that squeeze did not have the effect on pushing up the silver price, Pierre? Well, because the silver market is a huge market, just like the gold market is. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can squeeze the market for a day or two, but, you know, you cannot squeeze the market forever. And, uh, the uh, trying to, you know, back in the 1980s, I remember when the Hunt brother uh, put the squeeze on the on the silver market and ran the price from five dollars all the way to 50 uh, by controlling the output. I mean, what they were doing is essentially buying the mine production and they were they forced the market to go short and the market just went bananas here. The market today is so large. It's a billion ounces that is produced every year that you know you cannot have the same impact that you did back in the 1980s. Uh, now, the good thing about what's happened, though, is that it sensitized a lot of the millennials to the physical market, to silver market. So mm-hmm. even though they may have come in, come out, and just like did a quick transaction, the fact that they're even aware of it, to my mind, has been is a big plus to the market. 
Okay, well, do you think that the silver squeeze movement, if you want to call it that, had any lasting impact on the silver market? Well, if there is any lasting impact, I would say that was the lasting impact because right. in terms of price, no. But in terms of knowledge of the market, at least now there is a knowledge of the market by the, uh, a whole new generation that wasn't there before. I was speaking to some other guests about this issue, and I thought that perhaps if they had tried to squeeze specific mining stocks more so than the bullion, maybe that would have more of a market impact. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that, uh, especially the stocks that are more, you know, I would say illiquid. Uh, because the thing with GameStop, the, the reason why it went nuts is essentially it was totally illiquid. Uh, it, it had already been shorted twice over and uh, there was no liquidity in the market. So if you were to take you know, a mining stock with only, I don't know, like let's say 50 million shares uh, and of which 20% is owned by management, then all of a sudden you could really have a huge impact on, on the stock itself. But that we did not see. Okay, I'd like to talk about the uh, junior mining stocks that you're, that you're uh, involved with now. That was a perfect segue. Orla Mining and Prime Mining. First of all, maybe you can give us a brief introduction to those people who have not seen our last interview. And I'm curious to know that, you, I'm curious to know how you transitioned into these stocks coming from a multi-billion dollar royalty company into the junior space. Was there, was there a difference in strategy? Was your mindset different? How, 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 how has your day-to-day -day changed? Uh, well, th there is a definite mindset uh, difference. I mean, the royalty business is a totally different business. And I will never compete with uh, Franco Nevada on the uh, royalty business. I'm still a very large shareholder of the company and uh, it will have uh, my undying affection uh, you can be sure of that to, to the day I die. So like, you know, there's no way I could be uh, in that business. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, uh, having been at uh, Newmont Mining for uh, seven years and, you know, run one, at that time the largest mining company in the world, uh, I did learn a few things. And uh, also my days as an investor, to, my, to me, the number one thing is optionality, is that like if you're going to make money, you need optionality. And there's two forms of optionality in the, our business. There's land optionality, and then there is um, a reserve resource optionality. And if you can buy optionality for very cheap, you're gonna make a lot of money, especially if you can get it for free. Uh, so when we built Orla, the idea here that we were able to buy Camino Rojo in Mexico, which at the time had you know, a million ounce of oxide, but 7 million ounce of sulfide for a very modest price. So, well, you know, all you need is for the gold price to go up and you have tremendous optionality. And that's exactly what's happened. We're also able to do a deal with our neighbors. So now we have 2 million ounce or more or less of oxide open pit mineable, which is now under construction. And there's still, you know, seven, 8 million ounces of sulfide resource that we're looking at how can we make that you know possible so uh, and then on top of that we got a, a project in panama uh through a company that we bought per and that company's got a small open pit a real beauty uh gold mine but there again we had optionality on the land we started drilling and what did we find we found a copper gold zone which is now we're drilling we're increasing 
to my mind, if you got to find the best deposit in the world today, it's a copper gold deposit. If you can find one of those, you are in nirvana because, you know, copper is definitely the green metal. It's going to go on for the next, like, you know, 40, 50 years, the greening of the world, and you're going to need copper. Copper, essentially, our entire civilization rests on copper. It's, you know, without copper, we have no transportation. Without copper, you have no communication. So the, the copper is absolutely the essence of where we're going. And then gold, at the end of the day, when you look at the money being printed, it's the metal to own. So to my mind, that's where we've got the best, you know, optionality in the world. And just to clarify, in a gold copper mine, gold is a byproduct of copper. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. All right. I have usually you get it for free. <laughs> that's is the it, best part. What, what's usually the ratio between gold and copper in these types of mines? You know, David, it's all over the place. Uh, there's uh, there, there are some uh, copper mine like uh, Cobre Panama, for example. It's 95 plus. It's 98 percent copper to to well, it, by value. It's about 95 five. Uh, mm -hmm. And but yet there are some other mines where the, the value is closer to like 60, 40. And uh, so in the case of the deposit that we found in Panama, it's uh, the, the value is almost 50, 50. And I have one. that's terrific. Okay. Uh, I have one last question for you, Pierre. Now, sure. being the uh, chairman of Franco Nevada, you had the privilege of being, where I, I, I guess, thinking both as a miner and an investor, you have both mindsets. And I'm just wondering if you were to think like an investor now, what would you do to convince some of these smaller junior companies to enhance shareholder value? What could the industry, the junior mining industry as a whole, do right now that could be more attractive for investors at this time? You know, it, the fundamental thing about junior mining is at the end of the day, the 90% of the value in our business is created by the drill bit. So you've got to look at your finding cost per ounce. And if these companies are not able to find gold for like 20, 30, $40 an ounce, you should not be in this business. All right. And, you know, so what I look at as an investor, the bottom line is what's your cost of finding an ounce of gold? That's your common denominator. That's where you find the value for shareholders. I understand. Here, fantastic thoughts as always. I'm sure the audience will appreciate your insights. Thank you very much for coming on Kitco. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, David. I look forward to speaking with you again in the future. And thank you for watching Kiko News. I'm David Lin. Stay tuned for more coverage and don't forget to subscribe.